Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Well, shalom everyone. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. This is Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish Commentary. Today is Wednesday, January 6, 2016. Or, for those of you who are attending the live class in other parts of the world, today is Tuesday, January 5, 2016. Let's open with a word of prayer, and then we'll uh, entertain some Hebrew and some Greek liturgy, and then we'll jump into the study for tonight. Let's pray. Avinu, Malkinu, our Father, our King Lord, we look to you tonight once again. Holy Spirit, come and open the text to us. Lay the words before us bare so that we can engage within the text the Messiah, Yeshua, so that we can praise Him, so that we can worship Him, so that we can lift Him up and put Him in the place of preeminence in our lives. Father, we pray that you will continue to help us along as we study the book of Galatians and the relevance of of the information contained within this book. We know that the topic is relevant for us as Torah communities, as Messianic uh, communities, as um, followers after Messiah, because, Father, all of your words are relevant, and particularly so those texts that seem to touch on issues that um, bear relevance for the social issues that uh, we encounter as we move in and out among our Messianic communities. Lord, we understand that um, these are dark times, these are difficult times, and these are days in which we must be knitted to the vine. We must ever press in closer uh, to be more like Yeshua, to know Him and to learn of Him, and to continually put off sin so that we may be pleasing in Your sight. And so, Father, we seek not to puff ourselves up with our knowledge, not to demonstrate our superiority of the text or of things Jewish, um, Father, because we are Jews or because we're not Jews. Either way, Father, we understand that because of the finished work of Messiah, because, because of what He has done on the cross, that we now, Jew and Gentile, stand before you equal, equal covenant partners. And so we inherit these blessings together. And so let us strive to walk together, loving one another, caring for one another, uh, building one another up, um, uh, pressing, uh, 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 what, what do we say, um, uh, uh, challenging one another to press in further as we continue to be filled by your Spirit, which is indeed a commandment. So, Father, help us to press into your words and help us to remember that the Torah is the inheritance of Israel and that you have given it to us uh, so that we can be a blessing not only amongst ourselves, but be a blessing to those around us. And on that note, Father, we ask that you will uh, continue to cause us to be a witness, cause us to be lights, cause us to be salt. Um, help us to remember that Yeshua challenged us in the Beatitudes that we are a light set on a hill. We are a city set on a hill and that our light must shine to those around us and that we must not be ashamed of the, of the good news that we have. So we must put on the armor so that we can withstand against the evil one and so that we must shine as lights in this dark world. Uh, Father, bless me tonight as I continue to um, convey the words of the text and the words of the study that I've written. And I pray that you'll allow the um, truths that are relevant um, to sink in deep into the hearts of the students and that they will um, uh, retain that which you are showing them. And I thank you for the privilege to be able to sit before them 
and teach and to learn along with them. Bless you, Father, for all these good things. B'shem Yeshua. Amen. Okay, well, welcome back to um, our study in the book of Galatians, our live internet study. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi, and I'm a Torah teacher at um, Kehilat Tenova in Colorado. And I'm so blessed to have each and every one of you come out and join me uh, each and every week. It is an ongoing Torah study uh, in the book of Galatians, and we're using the, the commentary that I wrote entitled, Exegeting Galatians, Messianic Jewish Commentary. You can go online at two locations and find my study. You can go to www.graftedin.com. That's my home congregation website. And um, along the top, there's a menu. Uh, click on a link that allows you to scroll down and find the um, more lessons commentaries. I believe it's there. If you click on that, you'll be able to scroll through and find a link for the exegeting Galatians notes. You can either peruse through the original study that I did about eight years ago, or you can click on a link, I think it's a PDF link, to the updated Exegeting Galatians. And that's the study that we're following tonight, is the updated version of the Exegeting Galatians. Um, the other location that you can find me on the web is at www.tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. That's my own personal Torah teaching website. And from that website, right on the home page, along the very top, there's a menu section, and you can just click on Exegeting Galatians, and the notes are there. Um, again, you can access the PDF version, which is the complete study, about 122 pages or so. Or you can follow along with the, um, uh, the live classes that I'm recording. Each week, we meet Tuesday evenings from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time, and they have to kind of um, translate that time into wherever you are around the world if you're listening to this uh, uh, audio podcast after the fact. But if you want to meet with us live, uh, we meet for one hour every Tuesday evening, Central Standard Time, 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. And we just go over whatever notes I've um, sent out to the enrolled students. And um, there's no time limit set to the study itself. We're on a schedule that looks like this. We will study for 10 weeks, and then we take a break for two weeks so that we can kind of catch our breath, get caught up on classes we may have missed, or um, if the teacher's going too fast, you can kind of sit back and study on your own. And then we start studying again, and those are our semesters. They are 10-week uh, semesters, and we just kind of go like that. 10 weeks on, 2 weeks off, 10 weeks on, 2 weeks off. So we're in the second semester, so this is week 11. We just had a semester break. If you are in the live class right now, you'll see on your screen that I am parked on the chapter called Chapter 2, Ouch Factor, Why the Male Reproductive Organ. And just to kind of get a running start and figure out where we've been, um, the study itself has about 12 topical sections, 1 through 12, and then it goes into kind of a verse-by-verse -verse exposition of the book. And the reason I broke the commentary down that way is because I feel that if we kind of wrap our minds around the concepts that Paul and the book of Galatians are conveying to us, particularly first and primarily as they conveyed, as Paul conveyed his message to those first century uh, participants, those first century communities that would have been interacting with his letter, uh, the readers at the um, community known as Galatia. We have to first give them preeminence, meaning they get first shot at what does the letter mean to them. And we have to kind of put ourselves back into that mindset first. And that's what these first 12 sections of the commentary attempt to accomplish, is to get ourselves oriented back into the first century mindset so that we can kind of see the letter through their eyes. And then once we've done that, we can kind of shift our focus towards a practical application for us today. And that's kind of what happens in the second half or the second piece is where we go verse by verse, we kind of take our um, uh, social understanding of the first century Judaisms and read through the text and kind of apply it freshly with a, a different hermeneutic. And my aim is not to um, point at everyone else who doesn't read my commentary and say, you're wrong and I'm right. That's not what I aim to do. Rather, what I anticipate is that people will interact with my commentary and say, hmm, I never thought about it that way, or 
uh, gee, that reads a little differently than how I've heard it in traditional uh, church circles or traditional Christian commentaries, or even perhaps maybe a little different than you might uh, have been, uh, you might have encountered Galatians as you study through it, even through some messianic commentaries. Um, my goal is to, uh, as close and as, as best as possible, uh, uncover the text from a historical, grammatical, sociological perspective, and in so doing, uh, approach it from a kind of a scientific perspective, meaning take all the data that I could find, uh, that means the Christian commentaries, the Jewish commentaries, the rabbinic commentaries, the patristic writings, the ancient uh, first century writings, the Dead Sea Scroll writings, uh, Josephus, Philo, things like that. Kind of put all of that data on the table and then let the data kind of start um, bouncing off of one another and see what kind of comes um, to be, what, 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 what comes out as we let the data uh, kind of interpret itself. I'm not saying that it's just going to automatically jump off the page at you. Rather, what we do is we kind of corroborate. We find out which data um, backs up what else. Of course, primary the primary data is going to be the text, the uh, the Bible itself. That's that's going to be our primary um, resource. And then all that other um, res all those other resources are really just going to either. Um, support the text, or they're going to contradict it. And if they contradict, of course, we have to pitch them. But at least what we've gained is a perspective so that we can get some contrast. We can figure out, well, this works and this doesn't work. And that'll help us kind of be oriented towards what's a better understanding of perhaps Paul's writings. And so what I have discovered is that there are two schools of thought as we're kind of building up towards what we're going to talk about tonight, which is circumcision. What I have found is that there are essentially two schools of thought when it comes to the first century writings, the first century texts, Paul's writings in particular, um, and the application of, of what Paul is trying to get across to his readers. Here's what I've discovered. There is essentially a, a hermeneutic principle that has been um, taught, that has been adhered to, that has been... Um, uh, promulgated in uh, mainstream Christian uh, seminaries, and it's kind of passed down from the seminaries to the pastors who then feed this particular uh, school of thought that I'm about to share with you. They feed this to their parishioners, to their sheep, and then it kind of gets uh, uh, passed along mouth-to-mouth, -mouth, uh, word-of-mouth, to to each and every person. And, and, and so doing, what we end up with is kind of an unbroken chain of of thought that is carried along within prevailing Christian views of Paul's writings and, and Paul's theology and Paul's views on Torah obedience and Jewishness, etc. And in a word, what we end up with is Paul teaching Jews and Gentiles of the first century that Judaism has, is being replaced by Christianity. I'm, I'm speaking in very broad generalities, so bear with me. Judaism is being replaced by Christianity. Um, Torah is being phased out in favor of a new covenant, which I'm, I'm, I imagine must be uh, the ongoing or, or developing writings of Paul and the other apostles, which later become known as the New Testament, because it kind of confuses me that there's nothing really to hang on to if the Torah is completely tossed out the window in the first century, what words would have been authoritative. But nevertheless, this is the view that the Christian church kind of has inherited down through the ages. So Torah is kind of out, New Testament is in, usually it's put along the, in, these, in these terms. It's kind of like the Old Testament is being done, phased out, and the New Testament is being phased in, something like that, whatever Old Testament and New Testament mean. So Torah is no longer relevant for believers. We no longer have to concern ourselves with Sabbath, kosher, uh, those dietary issues, the festivals, circumcision. In a word, Jewish identity is being phased out. Now, I know Christians don't term it in that language. They don't usually say Jewish identity. But what they basically are, are describing is that Jews become Christians and they leave their semblance of Jewishness behind and basically become Gentile Christians because they take on non-Jewish characteristics, uh, meaning you know, Sabbath is out, Sunday is in, uh, Passover is out, Easter is in, 
Hanukkah's out, if you were. Christmas is in. Um, you don't have to worry about keeping kosher. You can eat ham. You can eat pork. You can eat shellfish. You can eat shrimp. Can, things like that. Um, and God doesn't concern himself with things Jewish anymore. Rather, all things are all. All is all. And, and I don't know. It, it just kind of doesn't make a lot of sense to me as a Messianic Jewish man. But nevertheless, this is the view that traditional Christianity has kind of carried along. And the words of Paul become the uh, basis for this particular view. Now, in theological circles, this view is basically labeled Lutheran Paul, uh, named after Martin Luther, who kind of becomes a champion of the, refer the, the Protestant Reformation, and therefore one of the more popular voices in Christian in Christianity today is is Martin Luther, well-respected, well-trusted author and preacher and Bible expositor, but nevertheless um, uh, pushing a view that is uh, kind of uh, against Torah or uh, against Judaism and pro-Gentile Christianity, if I can kind of label it like that. Basically, um, this view that I'm continuing to describe, and I'm going to, don't worry, I'll get to the, the, the uh, opposing view in a moment. This view, which I'm going to use in my writings, I'm just going to call it Lutheran Paul or Reformation Paul, um, basically hinges on two of Paul's, um, two, two of Paul's statements and, uh, kind of elevates them out of the text and brings them into, uh, a theological significance. And those two statements or sayings are uh, works of the law and under the law. And in this uh, Lutheran view of Paul, works of the law is defined as essentially um, uh, good works done in obedience to the law. And under the law becomes essentially the same thing, under obligation to obedience to the law. So in Church parlance and Christian parlance, basically works of law and under the law, describe similar circumstances. They describe similar um, similar uh, uh, things. That is keeping Torah or doing Torah, doing the things that would make you look Jewish. To be sure, meaning what when we say doing Torah, keeping Torah, what are we saying in, in today's circles? We're usually describing Sabbath-keeping, kosher-keeping. In, in a word, look at what the Jews are doing, and essentially what they're doing is we say they're keeping Torah. So we as Christians, I'm still describing the Lutheran view of Paul, we as Christians would come along and say, since Christ did away with the law, since Jesus fulfilled the law, since Paul taught that we're no longer under the law, all of those Jew things that the Jews are doing are, are simply um, vestiges of an old of an old, uh, what do we say, an, an, an old, um, I don't want to say an old tradition, an, an old way of thinking and an old way of approaching God's covenant, an old covenant. <laughs> and so we are now under a new covenant where we're no longer under law, we're under grace. We're no longer under obligation to Torah, we're, we're instead, instead under the law of Messiah, we're under obligation to keep the law, the, the Messiah's laws, not Moses' laws, something to that effect. And, and so, works of law and under law get kind of wheeled in that way. Huh. Now, what is the opposing view, or what is the opposite view? Well, the, the opposing view, or the, 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 the counter view, if you were, the, the, the other side of the coin, the other way of looking at it, would be that Paul didn't really do away with Torah. Instead, what Paul was trying to combat was a misuse of Torah or a misuse of Jewish identity or a misuse of one's position in the covenant. Um, and in doing so, he's not really saying that the Torah is done away with in the life of a believer or the life of a covenant member, that is to say a Jew or a Gentile, as they encounter Torah. What Paul is instead telling them is warning those, those covenant members about their proper view of Torah, their proper view of, of um, Jewish identity. And so that believing in Messiah becomes primary, and then Torah obedience falls in line with their belief in Messiah. So that a Jew who places his faith in Jesus in the first century can remain a Jew, that is to say, he can still keep Sabbath, kosher, festivals, things like that. He can still remain living, he can, he can continue living as a good Jew should live, but he now 
um, realizes that all things find their fullness in Jesus. All um, scriptures are pointing to Messiah. All covenant obedience is rooted and centered in the work of the Holy Spirit within him so that he no longer lives unto himself. He no longer has to worry about um, the deceitfulness and trappings of sin. To be sure, he no longer has to worry about the um, condemnation of sin. But he can now live his life as a Messianic Jew, as a renewed Jew, as a Jew who's been circumcised from the inside. And in this view of Paul, works of the law is not some, not necessarily works done in obedience to the Torah. Rather, works of the law describes a social boundary that separated the um, communities of Israel from anyone else. And it became a kind of a, a status symbol. The Torah and Jewish identity became status symbols. And those status symbols separated the Jewish people and Torah obedience from Gentile peoples and non-Torah obedience. Works of the law then becomes this kind of this social marker. Um, uh, it became a point of contention, to a wedge, um, a, a, a place to drive um, pride, uh, to, to allow Jewish pride to rise to the top and to kind of look down on anyone who was not Jewish or keeping Torah, anyone who didn't have this social status of being a Jew, being circumcised, having the words of God within your community, being a member of Israel, as it were. And so um, all of that gets uh, wielded by first century Israel uh, as a weapon against an, a, a kind of an ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism, is how I define it in my papers. All of that becomes um, uh, a central topic in Paul's letters, and Paul has to dismantle that. Paul has to... Um, demonstrate that 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 view of Torah, that view of circumcision, that view of Jewish identity is is wrong-headed. And it becomes, for Paul, an embarrassment of the Jewish community. And so Paul is going to champion um, Gentile inclusion into Israel as co-equals with their Jewish counterparts, equal in Messiah, equal in Torah obedience, equal in... Um, equal in God's eyes, equal uh, as um, redeemed sinners, as redeemed um, children from all, from all men. So Paul's going to use works of the law in that fashion. And then on the heels of that, under the law for Paul becomes a term that uh, indicates under condemnation to the law, not under obedience to the law, not under obligation to the law. It's kind of twisted in the in the first view. In, in my research, it's it becomes misused. It's better to understand under the law as under condemnation, kind of shorthand, under condemnation of the law. And used in that fashion, Paul is trying to convey a message to his first century readers that we're no longer under the condemnation of the law because we have been set free by the grace of Messiah. And by faith in Yeshua's um, crucifixion, in Yeshua's death, in his burial, in his resurrection, in his ascension, in his intercession... By placing our and casting our faith on Messiah, we no longer have to fear the condemnation spelled out in the Torah for unrepentant sinners. So, as I run away with these concepts, and I, I realize I completely just um, for for gone for uh, I just completely ignored all of the uh, um, liturgy that I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to start the commentaries with liturgy and then go into uh, my theology or into my teaching, but I apologize. So. Uh, no liturgy for tonight. What I was going to read is our liturgy, our circumcision liturgy. I was going to read the Genesis 17 passage in um, English and then in Hebrew, and then I was going to read the Galatians 5 passage in English and then in Greek. But instead, since it's already 30 minutes into, this, into the teaching, we're just going to keep going with the teaching and just forget the uh, um, liturgy for tonight. We'll pick up the liturgy next week. So, look at your notes. Let's start making some more sense about this concept of circumcision. Why was circumcision such a huge deal to first century Israel? Why was it such a huge um, issue to Paul? In my research into Paul, into Galatians, into Romans, into Acts, I have found, as I study through the rabbinic writings and, and use that handy tool to give me what I believe is a more accurate inside peek into the first century worldview, into what I um, 
say, the uh, pattern of, of religious um, life in first century Israel, what I found is that circumcision was being used, as I mentioned, as a kind of a social badge among the Jewish people. Now, again, it was being misused. In other words, the Jewish people of Paul's day didn't really think that they could simplistically earn their way into God's kingdom or earn their way into heaven or earn their way into the olam haba, the age to come, earn their way into God's favor, earn their way into the covenant. They didn't really simplistically look at Torah obedience in that manner. They didn't really use Torah for that purpose. In other words, what we're trying to do is describe motive. We know they were very um, devoted or interested or, um, uh, what do we say, respectful of Torah. Uh, in 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 distinction against or in, in difference to their uh, Jew, Gentile counterparts, per se, because Torah was part of the Jewish community from, you know, from when, since you were a little child. Torah was kind of given to you. So it's natural to understand why Jews would um, see Torah as being uh, important for their communities versus Gentiles who were perhaps not raised within a Torah community with Torah within their family as a part of their heritage, then Torah would not have seen would not have been as um, important to them until they maybe became interested in it as they visited the synagogue or uh, conversed with a Jew or a rabbi, etc., etc. So in Paul's day in the first century, we don't really have to look into Paul's writings and assume that Paul is going to be warning Jewish people away from keeping Torah for the sake of salvation. In other words, wielding Torah in a simplistic ladder-to-heaven fashion. The reason we know that's probably not the way that the Judaisms of Paul's day interacted with Torah is because of some of the surviving rabbinic manuscripts, some of the um, surviving uh, Dead Sea Scroll fragments that describe the pattern of religious life. Also, if you simply read through the Torah and then begin to read through the New Testament, and you'll begin to catch the, a glimpse of, of the hint of the logic of how the Torah becomes a part of the, of the life of a community member in Israel, you'll, you'll begin to see that it's not really the legalism that the church describes, which we call merit theology. It's not really as simplistic as that. It is a legalism. Don't get me wrong. The Jewish people had a deficiency in their view of Messiah and faith and Torah and circumcision and all of those things. But it wasn't the simplistic merit theology works-based righteousness that we describe in, in uh, common Christian circles today. And so that's decidedly what I'd call the old view of Paul or Lutheran Paul is basically uh, a description of, of Torah that works like this. This is the description of Lutheran Paul. If I keep Torah, God will save me. If I keep Torah, God will accept me. If I keep Torah perfectly, God will um, make me a covenant member, bring me into his, um, into his presence, and, and I'll have life everlasting, etc., etc. The, the problem with that view is that would have Paul teaching that we're not saved by keeping Torah, instead we're saved by believing in Jesus. And the problem with that is not, it's not, the problem with that is not theological. The problem with that is historical. Because practically speaking, it is false that if you try to keep, well, let me say it this way, if you think that keeping Torah will save you, then you're going to be sorely mistaken. So that's true, that um, Paul would not agree with any misuse of Torah, if I were to describe it that way. However, Paul wouldn't have to warn his Jewish um, people or Gentiles in the first century against using the Torah in that fashion because I don't believe history records that they believed that. They didn't wield the Torah that way. In other words, they were, they were casting their hopes and their faith on something else. It wasn't their meritorious um, observance of Torah that they were hoping that God would accept. Instead, their motive for keeping Torah was elsewhere. What we find if we study Paul a little bit more accurately, um, and we're going to term this new perspective or this new view of Paul, um, how should we call it? I mean, NPP, new perspective on Paul, has its faults as well. And I don't want to just say that the new perspective of Paul is the completely accurate way to, to view Paul as well. Um, 
you can do a Google search for that NPP New Paul Perspective, and you'll find that it is basically a challenge to the Lutheran Paul. And while I do feel that the New Paul Perspective is gaining acceptance among Christian circles as like as rightly it should be, it still has its issues. Instead, um, what I seem to find is that this new view of Paul, and I'll just call it the new view of Paul or more accurate view of Paul, um, updated view of Paul if you want to, um, this this updated view of Paul's letters um, seems to find first century Israel's crisis is in their understanding of their identity as Jews, identity as as members of Israel, their identity as circumcised people. In other words, their social identity. And so their motive for keeping Torah is not because they think it's going to save them. Instead, their motive for keeping Torah becomes maintenance of an existing membership via Jewish identity. So, it's their Jewish identity. It's their membership in in a social group. It's their membership as Israelites that becomes um, their hope of salvation, so to say. Their hope of entering into the age to come, the promises spelled out in the covenants. In other words, they are casting their faith on being Jews. They're casting their faith on being members of a social group, whether it be a member of the Pharisees, a member of the Sadducees, a member of the Essenes, whatever it is, they, their works of the law is this group membership, this um, identity, this social um, position, this um, status symbol. And so circumcision and Jewish identity, they're kind of all wrapped up together and they're Un, they, they're labeled under the rubric of works of law. Works of law becomes this social badge. Works of law becomes this um, status symbol. Works of law becomes this short list of um, do's and don'ts that get you into the group or keeps you in the group. If you uh, it gets you in the group if you're not already in, and it keeps you in the group if you once you're in. So essentially, it's like a coin with two sides. The first side of the coin is the side of identity. It's it's Jewish identity. It's how you get into the group if you're not already born into the group as a Jew. If you're born a Jew, then you've already you're born with the first side of the coin. And the second side of the coin is Torah obedience, and that becomes your maintenance side of the coin. That is, Torah obedience keeps you in the group. It keeps you from getting kicked out of the group by God himself. It keeps you from being get getting cut off like as then described in the Torah. It keeps you as a good standing member of the group. It keeps you um, within the um, confines of the uh, synagogue community. It keeps you from um, getting uh, excised, or what's the word? Uh, 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 what's the word we use today in church circles today? From getting excommunicated, from getting kicked out of church. Um, so it's, again, it's a two sided coin, and the first side is your identity as a Jew meaning you're either born Jewish or you're married into Jewishness if you're a woman, or um, you can become you can convert and become a Jew if you're if you were born a Gentile. So that becomes that's the first side of the coin, it's your identity. And then with that, the Torah obedience comes alongside of that on the second side of the coin. And your motive for keeping Torah then is not to get into the group. That's accomplished from the first side. Your motive for keeping Torah in the first century is so that you can maintain your place in the covenant. Now, stop and remind yourself as a 21st century Christian, neither one of those positions are accurate from God's perspective, right? You don't get into God's community, his lasting community, by being a Jew or becoming a Jew. And you don't stay in God's lasting community by keeping Torah, right? So Paul is going to argue against either one of those two mistaken theological positions. But what we have to understand is that first we have to identify the the problem so that we can identify the solution. And it appears to be that, as best as we can tell, from Paul's perspective and from from history, that the first century uh, communities, the Jewish communities, held to that view that I just described. They're kind of this two-sided, this coin with two sides. They believed they were in the covenant because they were Jews, and they believed they needed to stay in the covenant by maintaining and keeping their Torah obedience, which basically kept them uh, clear of, of the charges of sin 
and things like that. So that's that's really the, what we're what I'm going to describe as the better way of viewing Paul. It's kind of a more accurate historical way of viewing Paul. And what's really nice about this more accurate view of Paul is that instead of coming to the incorrect conclusion that because Torah can't save you, we no longer need Torah. Therefore, let's live a a kind of a law-free gospel. Let's walk a law-free um, lifestyle, a, a lifestyle that's free of any vestiges of Sabbath or kosher or, or festivals, or in other words, far from um, pushing Torah off to the side and shelving it and letting it collect dust, this more accurate view of Paul, or, or <clears throat> a more historically tenable view of Paul, allows for Torah to continue in the life of both a Jew and a Gentile, and Torah obedience um, remains a, a valuable part of a covenant member's life until he dies and meets Yeshua. And in this more accurate view of Paul, um, Paul doesn't have to jettison Torah in order for the gospel to continue and go forth, in order for the genuine good news of Yeshua to save both Jew and Gentile. Instead, all we have to do is is get right our view of, of identity, whether we're a Jew or a non-Jew. We have to correct our view and line it up with what the Torah, with what the Bible, with what Paul's writings, which are scripture, with what they describe our identity is, which is in Messiah. And once we, once our identity is firmly rooted in Messiah, then we can continue to walk a Torah-obedient lifestyle with full assurance that God is pleased in what we're doing, that God is pleased with our Sabbath-keeping, that God is pleased with our keeping kosher, with our keeping the festivals, with with our wearing uh, um, tzitzit and putting mezuzot on our doors, with keeping um, the Passover and things like that. God is pleased with that. We don't have to worry that God is somehow displeased with our going back under the law, as if that phrase describes something that's pejorative, meaning keeping Torah. So, are you guys following along with me? All right. Gosh, you're thinking, wow, Ariel's 40 minutes into your teaching and you haven't even touched the notes. Well, I apologize because we have to kind of get caught up. And I don't want any of the students to get lost as to where I'm going in the commentary. What I'm going to do is kind of start introducing um, circumcision a little more closely, kind of examining it a little more closely because of its relevance in first century discussions, first century um first century worldview. Remember, I understand or I believe that Paul originally, before he met Messiah, Paul originally held to the mistaken view that he was a covenant member because he was born Jewish, because he was circumcised. And because he was a covenant member, anyone who was not Jewish or born Jewish or circumcised was essentially a non-covenant member. And the only way to bring them into the covenant was to give them circumcision, was to, to put circumcision upon them, to turn Gentiles into Jews via the man-made ceremony known as the proselyte ceremony. Uh, an entirely uh, unscriptural ceremony, uh, meaning it was unwarranted. It was, it, God never prescribed the, the covenant of the, of, the, of the proselyte upon Gentiles who were wishing to join Israel. Instead, God simply said, cast your faith on me, cast your faith on my son, become obedient to my ways and my words, and I'll bring you into my covenant. So Paul held to this mistaken view before he met Yeshua, before his eyes were open. And so Paul is going to have to actually um, describe um, the correct view of circumcision to us and for us in his letters. And so that's why I kind of went back to this topic in my commentary. Uh, we just talked about uh, section one, which was um, entitled Brit Milah, which is a, a Hebrew term that means covenant of circumcision. And in that section, we learned that um, God was singling out Abraham, Abraham, and giving him this covenant sign as a reminder that it is not by the flesh that one is made right before God, but that it is by faith, it is by by trusting and being faithful to the words of God that one has made it tzaddik, that one becomes a righteous man. Um, and Paul picks up on this theme 
because he uses Abraham not only prominently in the book of Galatians, but also in the book of Romans. Abraham becomes the model of faith for us. Abraham becomes the exemplar of faith because Abraham is singled out by God as the father of the nation of Israel, as the father of the of the people of Israel. And anyone, both Jew or Gentile, who wishes to join themselves to God and to Israel must look to Abraham as the model of faith. Faithful Abraham, who not only trusted in the word of the Lord and became uh, credited as righteous, but also became obedient to the sign of circumcision. And and so we have to remind ourselves that um, circumcision is an everlasting sign that God gives to Abraham to perpetuate throughout his generations, throughout his his um, family members, throughout his uh, uh, progeny, throughout his offspring. And so we do damage to the text as as modern Christians by teaching that circumcision is no longer relevant. No, no, no. That's not a correct view. That's not what the Torah teaches. And so we shouldn't teach that from our pulpits. And In fact, circumcision is relevant in God's view. It's relevant to, it was relevant to Abraham. It's relevant to God. It's important to Paul. And so we have to understand why it's important to Paul. So what we begin to uncover is we peel back uh, the layers that have uh, clouded, the layers of tradition that have clouded the issue, is we begin to be, begin to find that circumcision should not have described Jewish identity the way it does today, the way it did in the first century. Instead, circumcision should have been an outward sign of an inward reality. Um, it should have been a marker pointing towards the fact that um, uh, one becomes obedient to God's words as he takes on circumcision, as, as the sign of his faith, as a sign, as a seal of his faithfulness to, to God and to God's ways and to God's promises. But as we turn our attention now more specifically towards where circumcision takes place on the person, on the male, we begin to ask ourselves this question. I called it the $64,000 question last in, in week 10. Why there, God, why did you ask Abraham to cut himself in that particular spot? And so with that, we turn our attention to today's commentary, uh, tonight's teaching Ouch factor, why the male reproductive organ? Okay, let me read down through the commentary for a bit, just for about uh, 15 minutes or so, and then I'll just stop and explain uh, what I'm reading, okay? We're in the commentary on page 13, so if you've got it printed out before you, or if you're looking at this, the screen, if you're in the live class tonight and you're looking at the screen, let's pick up the reading right there at the top of page 13. Why did God have Abraham circumcised that is removed foreskin in the first place? Have you ever stopped to ponder this enigmatic question? After all, God is not capricious. He could have easily had our father remove skin from his ear or his finger or other part of his body, but why the male sex organ? Covenants usually involved at least two parties. Likewise, there was usually a sign of the covenant being established. This sign, according to ancient Middle Eastern writings, was usually something that either party could carry on their person, such as a stone or other object. This sign, when viewed by either individual, served as a reminder that the person was under obligation to fulfill his part of the covenant. It also assured him that the other party was under the same obligations. Removal of the foreskin of the male sex organ was not exclusively Hebrew. The ancient Egyptians had been doing it for some time as well. But when Hashem asked Avraham to participate in this rather lopsided covenant, remember, Avraham did not earn his position before God. It was not, I'm sorry, he did not earn his position before God. Rather, it was graciously granted unto him. You can remind yourself by reading Romans 11.6. When God asked him to participate, our father Avraham did not hesitate to become obedient to the command. Tim Hegg of FFOZ Notoriety has been, in my opinion, spearheading the movement to bring about a more accurate view of Paul and the Judaisms that he had to confront in the first century by publishing essential books and papers for Christians to carefully examine. So I wish to quote 
Mr. Haig from one of his works to show the messianic implications of God asking him to circumcise himself exactly where he eventually ended up circumcising himself. As of um, 11.15.05, so this quote was quite a while ago, Haig's entire online article was available at his website at the particular link that you see in my um, paper there uh, at uh, TorahResource.com. Um, let's refer to our uh, Genesis text, and let's use Tim Haig's writings here. So we read from Mr. Haig, quote, Chapter 16 opens with an exposition and complication. Sarai, Abram's wife, is barren. If the former narrative settled the question of God's full intention to give offspring, this unit questions the method by which the promise would be fulfilled. Abram follows the advice of his wife and takes Hagar as a second wife. The reader is aware immediately, however, that rather than solving the problem, the action of Abram and Sarai has introduced complication into the story. The story continues with the appearance of Yahweh to Abram, signaling resolution, reassuring him of the continuation and maintenance of the covenant. The issue of the promised offspring, the main subject of chapters 15 and 16, continues in this section. Regardless of the etymological meaning of the change from Abram to Abraham, their narrative is clear that Yahweh has installed Abraham as a father of the nations. Thus, chapter 16 gives the divine solution to the problem addressed in chapter 16, namely the realization of the promise regarding the seed. So, uh, the divine speech, this is uh, Tim Haig still speaking, the divine speech to Abraham in Genesis 17, 1-5 is taken up exclusively with the promise of offspring. Haig continues, The introduction of circumcision continues this theme. The promise of offspring has been established, but the method or manner by which the offspring would be realized is now made clear. In the same way that the complications surrounding the promise of land and blessing were resolved by direct divine intervention, so too the promised offspring would come by divine fiat. Human enterprise and strength would not be the means by which God would fulfill his promise to Abraham regarding the seed. Circumcision, that is, the cutting away of the foreskin, revealed this explicitly, coming on the heels of God's renewed promise to Abraham regarding his progeny and his installation as a father of a multitude of nations, the sign of circumcision upon the organ of procreation must be interpreted within the narrative flow as relating to the method by, with, by which the complication, that is the absence of children and age of both Abraham and Sarah, would be resolved. The promise would come not by the strength of the flesh, which the Hagar plan represented, but rather by above human means. If circumcision were a sign given to Abraham by which pointed specifically to the need for faith in regard to the coming seed, it is valid to ask whether or not the other Old Testament authors also attached this meaning to the ritual. And in conclusion to Tim Haig, this last paragraph, interestingly, the two times circumcision is used in a metaphorical sense in the, in the Pentateuch, in Deuteronomy 10.16 and Deuteronomy 30.6, the immediate context is that of the Abrahamic covenant. In Deuteronomy 10.12, the unit begins by an exhortation to revere the Lord your God, to walk only by it in his paths. End quote. Furthermore, in Deuteronomy 10.15, the, the covenant love of Yahweh for the fathers becomes the basis for the exhortation to cut away the thickening about your hearts. That is, if the promises made to the fathers should be realized, it would only it would it will be so only as each Israelite relates to Yahweh on the basis of faith. The heart which relies on the flesh, that is foreign power, self-strength, etc., will fail. Rather, the fleshly heart must be cut away and discarded. End quote. Now let me stop there in the commentary. And I don't think I'll read any more out of the commentary. We stopped in the middle of page 14, so that's where we're going to pick up next week. Instead, let me use these last 10 minutes to kind of explain what I believe Tim Haig is trying to um, get across to us. Basically, because Paul is going to need to um, 
need to identify the problems within his Jewish worldview, within the first century Jews of his day, in regards to circumcision, because Paul's going to need to pinpoint the deficiency. Paul necessarily had to go back through the Genesis narratives where Abraham and where circumcision, particularly Genesis chapter 17 and things like that, which we would have read in my liturgy had I taken the time to do that. But um, Paul necessarily would have had to go back and, and read through those uh, Genesis narratives and remind himself with eyes opened afresh by the Spirit of Messiah, remind himself of what the true intentions behind the giving of circumcision and what it implied in the life of Abraham, particularly at the time that Moses recorded Abraham becoming circumcised in Genesis 17. So essentially, what Tim Haig is trying to hint at, which I think is accurate, is that if you read through the Genesis narrative and you read it like a story, like it should be read, which is start in, say, for the life of Abraham, start with Genesis 12 and just read sequentially chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and watch the, the importance of the interaction between God and Abraham and the development of Abraham's faith as God and Abraham are dialoguing about these promises of multiplicity, the promises of an of offspring, and how Abraham is is um, interacting with with God's dialogue, and how Abraham is is walking in this faith that is being developed, that is growing within him. And if you work your way down through the Genesis narrative, starting with chapter twelve, and work your way up towards chapter 17, which is where the circumcision narrative is given to us by Moses, you're going to find that, as we agree with Paul, that um, Abraham is counted as righteous in Genesis 15, but he's counted as circumcised in Genesis 17. That's from a broad perspective. In other words, if we were to reinterpret the Genesis narrative along traditional Christian theology, if we were to just throw the Christianese back into the text, we could describe it this way. We would say that Abraham became saved in Genesis 15, and Abraham became sanctified or circumcised in Genesis 17. And that plays a huge theological part in Paul's discussion in the book of Galatians. Why? Because, remember, the deficiency from the Judaisms of Paul's day, from their perspective, circumcision was the get-all, be-all, do-all, end-all um, status symbol that described the life of a tzaddik, that described the life of a righteous person, that that um, gave you that social status, that gave you that badge of honor, that, that badge of righteous, that badge of covenant membership, so to speak, that became your membership um, entryway into the group. You had to become a Jew. You had to become circumcised. You had to become... Uh, a proselyte if you were a Gentile, or you, you were born into the covenant if you were a Jew. And so the Jewish people of Paul's day, the Jewish communities of Paul's day, had misunderstood the circumcision narrative in Genesis 17. They essentially put the cart before the horse, and in, and, and in their view, basically Abraham became saved in Genesis 17, right? Instead of becoming saved in Genesis 15, where, where Moses described it, you know Genesis fifteen six, and he believed in the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. A verse that Paul is going to use over and over again in his letters. Uh, the Genesis fifteen six passage, which we know correctly describes Abraham's salvation experience, instead, uh, the first century Jews were mistakenly believing that essentially the Genesis seventeen passage, where Abraham became uh, circumcised, they believed that that was the most important part of the equation, and therefore, circumcision or Jewish identity. Uh, became the sign of covenant membership instead of faith, instead of faith. And so Paul, reading back through the Genesis narrative with eyes opened by the Messiah himself, by the, the Spirit of Messiah, Paul's going to now correctly identify and interpret the Genesis narratives the way that we're interpreting them now. That is, Genesis 15 preceded Genesis 17, and therefore circumcision pre um, came after salvation. And why is that important? As I mentioned, it's because of what circumcision points towards. Why there? Why that particular body part? And so what, what Tim Haig is hinting at in his commentary that I'm uh, quoting here in my own uh, Galatians commentary is that circumcision upon the organ of procreation 
is God's way of of giving Abraham a very painful object lesson. And what was that object lesson? It's this. Abraham, it's not by your own effort that you're going to bring the promise of the son to pass. Yes, Abraham, I promise to bless you and make you a father of many nations. This is God speaking. Yes, Abraham, I promise to bring blessing into your life and that through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed, which we know ultimately points towards Yeshua, the ultimate offspring of Abraham. Yes, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bring children into your life, but you're not going to bring about my promise by self-effort. You're not going to bring about my promise by human intervention. You're not going to bring about my promise by taking matters into your own hands, which is what the Hagar plan represented. And exactly what body part did Abraham use during his Hagar plans? Well, we don't have to be too graphic. I'm pretty sure you understand. Abraham thought that he would use his own flesh, his own male, <laughs> his own male body part to bring about the children that God had promised to him. So, in, in fact, Abraham does bring about a child, but, but who is Ishmael? Ishmael is a child of the flesh. He's a child of self-effort. And therefore, he's not the child of promise. He's not the child of, he's not the covenant child that God envisioned. Instead, Ishmael represents complication. Hagar represents works of the law. Or Hagar and Ishmael represent a, um, a striving of the flesh. And so God has to set Abraham down and have Abraham cut away that part of his flesh, cut away that particular part, not cut off. Don't get me wrong. Ouch. That would really be ouch, right? Otherwise, he's not going to have any kids after that. Rather, Abraham circumcises that particular body member in, in a demonstration of an act of obedience to God and an act of saying that I can't bring about the promises by my own strength, by my own ingenuity. I must rely on God. I must rely on faith. And it is only by faith that the promised son is going to come into my life. And indeed, after Abraham becomes circumcised, it's then that Isaac, I'm sorry, that, yes, that Isaac is... Uh, um, clarified by God to be the child of promise and that God is indeed and that yes that God is going to indeed bring Isaac into Abraham and Sarah's life a year later you remember it's in uh, chapter 18 i believe that um, we had Abraham healing by the oaks of Mamre and we have God and Abraham and Sarah having this discussion you all know the story from your Sunday school lessons it's where uh, Sarah laughs when God says that in a year's time you're going to have a son and of course, this was after the Hagar plan. This is after circumcision. This is after uh, Ishmael, the, the Hagar plan. This is after all of that failed. So Hag is, uh, Tim Hagg is simply trying to remind us that if we read through the narrative kind of with that scope, with that view, we're going to find that essentially the, to answer the question, why, why the male sex organ? It's because the, Abraham used the male sex organ to try to bring about the promises under his own effort. And when he failed, God sat him down and cut away that part of the flesh to demonstrate that it's not by flesh, it's not by human ingenuity, it's not by, it's not by the works of the flesh that the promises of God are brought to pass. Rather, only by the Spirit of God only by God's power can the promises be brought into our life and be brought to pass and come to fruition. And the theological significance of this important and painful object lesson as we interact with it, as I close my um, study tonight, the, the theological significance for us and for Paul is that the Judaisms of Paul's day were thinking that by circumcision, that by self-effort, that by by putting forth their own Jewish identity, by, by presenting Jewish identity or covenant membership in terms of, of ethnicity, by presenting that before God, they were believing that that self-effort would earn them a right standing with God, would earn them the promises that God has given to them. In other words, the Jewish people of Paul's day were basically... Um, uh, they were re they were committing the same mistake that Abraham did when he when Abraham engaged in the Hagar plan. You, you see it there. 
the Jewish people of Paul's day were essentially placing their faith in the wrong location. They they were trusting in an ethnicity. They were trusting in Jewish identity. They were trusting in their social status as Jews, uh, which we call the works of the law. They were they were trusting in this man-made distinction, in this this in self-effort in the flesh, and because of they they were missing the true object of faith, which was Messiah. They were missing the, the, the object of faith, which was um, the plan of God. They were missing uh, the, the blessings of God in their life. And Paul had to come along and set them straight and tell them, it's not by the works of the law that we're made righteous, i.e. it's not by Jewish identity, it's not by ethnicity, it's not by our social status as Jews and Torah keepers, it's not by our membership in Israel that we're made righteous before God. Instead, like Abraham of Genesis 17, of Genesis 18, it's by faith in the word of the Lord. It's by faith in God's power that we are made right before God, that the blessings of God will come into our life, that the Messiah will um, um, come to the forefront. You getting my point now? So with that, I'll stop and shut down the commentary, or shut down the study tonight. And for those of you who are in the live study, um, you're welcome to stay with me for the next 15 minutes where we do the live Q&A, where you can type in questions in the chat room and I will respond, um, but I won't record the Q&A session. Uh, otherwise, for those of you who are uh, listening to this commentary by way of the um, recorded podcast after the fact, let me dismiss in prayer and I hope to see you next week at the same time, Tuesday evening, 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time, Central Clock. You're certainly welcome to come out and join us in the live study. But you're going to need to contact me first because the only way you can sign up and join the live study for the WizIQ is you're going to need WizIQ credentials. And I don't want you to sign up and join WizIQ on your own. Go ahead and contact me and I will assign WizIQ credentials for you so that you can sign into the live class, the live webinar, okay? Uh, the, the credentials are free, but seating is very limited. So please contact me in advance if you want to receive your unique credentials so that you can also join me in the live study for exegeting Galatians. Let's close in prayer. Father, I bless your name, and I thank you for the opportunity to sit before the students once again and to engage in a study of the text, to, to press into the scriptures so that we can know you, so that we can learn of you. Father, we desire to know Messiah. We desire to put on Christ and to, to um, be found in his righteousness, to be clothed with his righteousness, not a righteousness of our own, not a righteousness that is uh, um, uh, supported by the flesh, but rather a righteousness that is uh, rooted in Jesus and in his finished work. Father, we know that there's only one way to to you. We know that there's only one way, as you should described it, one way to the Father, and that is through the Son. But Father, once we find Messiah, let us seek to become pleasing to you. Let us continue to seek to be Torah observant, Torah obedient, Torah respectful, because that is your plan for our life, to become obedient to the commandment, even as we have become obedient to the Messiah, Yeshua. Raise us up in these last days. Let us be salt. Let us be lights. Let us be a witness to those around us. Give us strength. Give us the courage to put on the armor of God as Ephesians chapter 6 instructs us. Help us to continue to, to walk by faith and to, to be filled with the Spirit as Ephesians chapter 5 describes for us. Um, help us to know our place in Messiah and our place in our communities so that we can um, spurn one another on towards faithfulness and towards uh, greater uh, appreciation for one another and for the words of God. Continue to protect us and to raise us up as, as a fellowship, as a kehilah, as a community of faith. And we'll be careful to look to you, Yeshua, for all these good things. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, 
serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.